Welcome to the IEH Podcast, where we profile fellows of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. And I'm Melissa Clay. Today's episode is another highlight episode in which we'll be featuring the interviews we've conducted during the spring semester of 2017. One of my favorite podcasts this semester was my interview with Kim Church because we got to hear her read from her book, Bird. I actually think we should have more of that, more people reading from their works because it was a great experience to to listen to that, to hear somebody read their original piece. Dear Bird, this is how I told your father. We climbed up on his roof. We could see the ocean, wrinkles of light in the distance. I was wearing a billowy cotton skirt. I wanted to look soft, unthreatening, unselfconsciously pretty. I wanted your father to love me. My legs were pale, not used to sun in winter. I had painted my toenails lavender. I wanted him to be a little sorry he hadn't loved me all along. The roof of his apartment was flat, asphalt, all grit and sparkle. He was glad to see me, he said. He didn't ask why I'd come back. He unfolded an orange blanket from his sofa bed, and we laid out our picnic. Smoothies, crinkle-cut fries from his favorite stand on the beach, canned peaches from his kitchen, and barbecue I'd brought from home, packed on dry ice. So much food. I had to make myself eat. I chewed slowly, counting each bite the way you're supposed to, though I couldn't remember how high to count. A warm breeze ruffled my skirt. Your father offered to spike my smoothie, but I covered my cup with my hand. I wish I could tell you we were young, inexperienced, not yet grown-ups or ready to be. That's the story you're expecting, isn't it? We were 32. We'd grown up together. Everything about the afternoon, our picnic, the roof, the sun, the salty air, your father's pilled orange blanket, him sitting close and warm beside me, had been coming all our lives. After we'd eaten, when I couldn't put it off any longer, I told him my news, the news I had carried across the country to deliver in person. I thought if I could see him when I told him, I would know what to do. I was delicate telling him, artful as I'd practiced, so artful he didn't understand at first what I was saying. He blinked like the sun was hurting his eyes, the big white California sun, dazzling, warm, even in February. And Kim Church was in a typical podcast we have because she wasn't a faculty member. Right. She was a recent winner of the Crook's Corner Book Prize, a local book prize uh, here in Chapel Hill. And the Institute for the Arts and Humanities hosted an event for writers, and she participated in that event, which led to our interview with her. Yeah, I'll say one of the highlights for me for the podcast uh, was our interview with Molly Worthen, who's a history professor. Her project is on charisma as it relates between religion, particularly Christianity in the United States, and also politics. So I thought that was that was pretty fascinating. My current book project, um, I hope, is going to emerge as a big history of the idea of charisma, both as a religious concept and a political idea. 
And that's something that I, I got interested in, this kind of question of the interaction of, uh, of, of theology and, and uh, personal magnetism yeah. and politics. First, I suppose, in, in, my, um, in my experience observing the evangelical Christian communities I was studying. But it's, of course, a lens that you could apply to you know, any, any human context. The word charisma is one we use an awful lot. It's not academic jargon. It's one you see in the newspaper, but it's it's, it's actually rather vague. Mm-hmm. You know, what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about this sort of ethereal glow around you know leaders we admire? Are we talking about uh, the the f- sort of physicality of a of a performer? The concept, you know, I think is it, it it's interesting that it it's not a it's not one that has been part of our discussion of politics for. Uh, generations and generations, it has a very particular history. A particular guy, the sociologist Max Weber, took that word, which was really a kind of obscure theological term that would have been familiar to, you know, German theologians, you know, his his colleagues in 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 theology, but but a few other people. And he borrowed it for his own analysis of politics. And before that, people would have talked about magnetism or something like that. So the concept is very old. And it comes originally from a, a particular religious context. You know, it's this idea that you see in the, in the Jewish and Christian scriptures of, of this gift by God's grace, a kind of, uh, you know, presence of, of the Holy Spirit in, in God's chosen uh, messengers. You know, that's the sense in which uh, we, we see it play out in the scriptures. And, and that's its meaning um, for, for early uh, you know, early people who are kind of using this idea to talk about some come some kind of anointed anointed leader who has this power, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in maybe starting with this tradition around the medieval and early modern kings of Europe, particularly uh, in England and France, known as the King's Touch, in which the king was supposed to have this power to heal particular illnesses by his touch. Queens sometimes had it too, particularly this, this illness, a scrofula, um, which was this very um, nasty, uh, it would result in sort of uh, very ugly sores all over your face and neck. And supposedly it was believed that if you went to the king and knelt before him on one of the days when he presented himself, he would touch you and you might be healed. Now, scrofula happens to go into remission uh, sort of unpredictably with some regularity. So it lent itself to, at least from the, se- the perspective of the secular historian, to seeming like it might miraculously respond to the king's touch. But the, the way in which observers and, and people in the royal court wrote about this was very much in terms of, of the king as a divine servant, as the sort of representative of God on earth in some way, who had this gift by virtue of his office. From this kind of early modern context where we, we so clearly see the, the, the residue of, of religion all the way up through, you know, president, presidential candidates in the 21st century kissing babies, you know, yeah. and what is, what is the line, right? And at what point does the theology sort of morph into something that at least is no longer explicitly religious? And frankly, I, I became, I guess my interest was really piqued in the context of the last election, watching the relationship between Donald Trump and his followers at rallies, particularly when, you know, in, in talking to 
unsympathetic observers of Trump about their reactions to him, the last word on their lips was charisma. I mean, to to those who didn't like Trump, who don't like him, he is a bore. He he is very he has he has he repulses them. He has the opposite effect. And yet, for for these people, kind of in his thrall at the these political rallies, charisma, you know, it, it, it almost seems to fall short uh, in, in any attempt to describe this this magnetism and this way in which he he is so uh, ingeniously able to evoke certain emotions and almost read the feeling of the crowd. She doesn't have a religious background per se, but her curiosity has led her down this path that was really fascinating to me. I also really enjoyed the podcast that you did with Jane Brown and Pat Pakila on the retired faculty program. It's one of our newest programs, and they really demonstrated why it was so important to reach that faculty, what they have to offer, and the experience, the institutional knowledge, but also just the process and what it means to be a faculty member here at UNC. What kind of projects motivate you right now? Could I actually talk about co-facilitating yeah. the seminar? Because this is actually really, really is a, a big, important project for me right now. And what I'd like to do, if I could, is try to define what I've referred to many times as IAH magic. Okay. Because I think that IAH works magic. Um, so there are basically three elements that have all been really important to the seminar also so far. And that is an ability to create community. That's the first important thing. So taking people who don't know each other at all and thinking hard about what it takes to have people come to trust each other. How much of their stories do they really need to know before they can delve really deeply and actually offer suggestions, help, advice, and receive them as well, which can be at the heart of an ongoing um, community. And it's just a thrill to, to watch that emerge from the groups that we've had so far. I think the second thing is appreciation. So our culture, our university really lacks a culture of appreciation, and IH is fabulous at that. So people selected for these various programs know they're appreciated right away, but then parking Jane mentioned, lunches, books, all these, I mean, sort of tangible examples of this, but it's also the way that people come to appreciate each other, which, of course, strengthens community. And then the third, which gets to your um, original question, is inquiry. So Mm -hmm. it's not that all of this is laid out for you, just for you to enjoy a nice lunch with some friends. There's there's a deeper a deeper uh, goal a deeper well what are we here for well, how can we help what what are the missing pieces that a group such as a retired faculty could in fact um, fulfill and I think the answer is all different directions and so the ways <laughs> the seminar has gone is Jane created this um, create a life you love in retirement and. I'm the one sort of nudging, well, doesn't that include UNC Chapel and all? <laughs> kind of, if not, why not? And if mm-hmm. that means, oh, those are problems that, that one needs to solve. And you can probably see that all three of these play on each other. So when you're appreciated, yes, you're willing to inquire. Yes, you're willing to 
help out, but then that makes you feel more appreciated when your ideas are listened to, and that strengthens the community, which means you know more and you're able to inquire more deeply, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those three elements are unique at UNC Chapel Hill, and I feel so blessed to have been a part of it. Beautifully said. And I think uh, the, the community part always worked for me in the leadership program and in the regular fellows program, and we see it happening again, where people from all across campus, ha- some who have never seen each other before, are sharing personal stories and their fears about retirement as well as their desires and hopes. And it's really a wonderful thing. So we're only three weeks into this one already, and they're so intimate already. We had a couple interviews that focused around Asian studies, being Leanne Trong, who's an artist, and then Morgan Patelka, who studies medieval Japan. I got to take a look at Leanne Trong's work, and it's just amazing, the the her use of color. I mean, I know we can't show that on the podcast, but it, when she talks about yeah. where that's all derived, I, it was it was a great interview. But I fell back onto painting because I think that for me, you know, my, my, my parents coming from Vietnam as refugees, you know, you tell them you want to be an artist and they're like, no, you will not be an artist. Um, do something practical, of course, you know, make sure you have, you know, you make your, your living. But for me, it became an outlet to work out issues I saw in the world. And so then that's, you know, where I gravitated and I, be- I switched over to art um, without telling my parents and then I eventually went went to Mills College for graduate school, and here I am. So, how was that conversation telling them that you're? Well, for two years, they they talked me out of switching majors, and I actually took time off. Um, oh, okay. And then, then I basically went back and did it without telling them. And then, <laughs> then when I when I did graduate with an art degree, my father asked me, "Now you could you could get a job?" And I told him, "Nope," because it was just a bachelor's. <laughs> Walked away very disappointed. So, can you talk a little bit about your current project that you're working on now? Yeah. So, currently, I'm working on a project that is reinterpreting historical narratives, and um, the the work combines ideas of Michel Foucault. So, I've been using that as sort of this this sort of conceptual point to create these very abstracted narrative paintings and and. Within them, I am using a hybridity of, of oil painting, of linen, of silk a material, of textile, and, and it's gesture painting that is meant sort of like music, like instrumental music, to capture a conflict that is complicated. And so I, I have these gestures that represent different, different textile designs, like merging, assimilating, penetrating each other. And then within that, I have these motifs of waters of water and... Um, and silk, and you know, so there's there's sort of like this ab- very abstracted painting that, in some ways, I'm trying to capture the spirit of the conflict I'm talking about, and I really see them as historical narratives. So the gestures for me replace any kind of human figure, but they are the human figure, um, just you know, creating the action of what we're doing in the world. Can you talk a little bit more about the use of of textile patterns? Because I find that mm-hmm. pretty interesting, and and how how you came about to using that as a representation. Yeah. You know, I think I you know, I think that for myself um I you know, the concept of identity is really interesting to me and 
being being a Vietnamese refugee and then and then becoming an American citizen, I think in my travels to Vietnam, which is probably six times now within the last 20 years or t yeah 20 years, you know the idea of attire is fascinating. But then when I looked into textile designs, and I I've always been attracted to textile designs. When I look at the history of it, it's this it itself is this incredible narrative of trade, and within that trade you have the complications between the ancient East and West, right? And then, um, you know, the, 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 the perceptions of what the East and West are, depending on where you are in the world. Yeah. And then also the hierarchy and power that's involved um, and how, you know, the, the exotification of, of silk from the East was used to, rep, to made the West, you know, richer and more opulent. But it's, it's very complicated. So I think to embed that to me is really interesting. And then when I look into textile the worldwide textile trade, it's also fascinating when you look at the patterns. The patterns tell their own history of how, of what narratives were during that time, and then how sometimes you have an aesthetic of a pattern that looks like it's French, but it's actually was made in India for British, you know, for like for British patrons. So you have, yeah. it's really fascinating to me. What I didn't realize until I got far into the project was that my own family in Vietnam had an embroidery business on oh, textiles, really? which is, I think that for me, I don't know, there's, so there's this really interesting um, history I have with it that mm -hmm. I, I think I need to delve deeper. I really appreciated Morgan Patelka teaching me about where Star Wars was derived. Yeah, well, I knew, I knew that George Lucas used a lot of influence from Kurosawa, but I didn't know, I always heard that and then know background of how exactly. Exactly. Well, I thought it was like the samurai, so with the lightsabers, but there's more to it than that. Right. Yeah, so that, that was really cool to hear. So what Kurosawa film would you recommend? So at one level, I would say you can't go wrong. I mean, his films are almost universally amazing, but I do have some favorites. So... Um, <laughs> One film that's that's really fun because it was used as a model by George Lucas when he was making Star Wars is called Hidden Fortress. And it's about these two bumbling peasants who, of course, in Star Wars, that's C-3PO and R2-D2, who kind of stumble into this epic drama of a warrior, warrior who's trying to protect a princess. And um, it is... A great story it's beautifully shot and you can see scenes that George Lucas used in Star Wars so it's kind of interesting because it influenced American popular culture in the in the 70s and 80s um, a movie that he's that he's really famous for because it's a, a virtuosic work of film is Rashomon uh, Rashomon is set in medieval Japan uh, it's about a murder and potentially a rape that occurs in the forest and the story or the overlapping stories of various observers and or participants. And it's about the instability of truth and the complexity of first and third person accounts. And it's just brilliant. Uh, it's also beautifully shot and, and a really powerful film. But the, those are pretty well known. So the the last one that I'll suggest is a little bit less well known. It's called Stray Dog, 
and it's a film that was that Kurosawa made during the American occupation of Japan after World War II that is about the occupation of Japan. It's about a soldier who is repatriated from the former Japanese empire and becomes a cop. And he is on the trail of a murderer who is another soldier repatriated from the collapse of the Japanese empire. And so he's kind of chasing himself through the streets of this city that was firebombed into oblivion during the war. And it's the real streets of Tokyo in 1951 or whatever. So it really captures this vision of that city at a moment that's completely different from the moment we live in now. So another wonderful film. It also has a great scene of Japanese baseball from 1950 or 51, whenever it was filmed, that shows that even that early, it was very distinctive and very unique and quite different from American baseball today. So that's, that's a few good examples, I think. So this will actually be the last episode of the IAH podcast. That doesn't mean we won't be releasing future episodes. We're actually changing the name. That's right. The new name will be The Institute. So look forward to more episodes. Uh, it will still be Clay and I conducting the interviews along with other staff of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. Just a slight name change. We might get a new logo, too. But from now on, uh, you'll be enjoying faculty interviews from the Institute.